Hello, and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the Global Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry. And I'm Charles Hecker. This is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world and what it means for business. And what about your world, Chuck? What's going on? Sitting in the office with you and being able to look at you in person reminds me, Claudine, that we're due to submit an article pretty soon for Risk Map 2022. And I think we're meant to help everybody understand what's going on kind of post-Afghanistan, post-9-11 world, global transformation. And we need to get that done because 2022 is hard upon us. Chuck, for the benefit of our listeners, explain what we're talking about. Well, Claudine, Control Risk has been publishing something called Risk Map for, I think, almost 25 years. And it is our flagship annual forecast of political security and operational risk. Basically, this is Control Risks, helping our clients understand what to expect for the coming year, what are some of the things that are on our mind, and where we really think that clients should be focusing their limited amounts of energy and attention for the year to come. Well put, Chuck. Yeah, we, we really enjoy it as well, don't we? It's, it's always fun to, to sort of take a step back and, and brainstorm together about what we think the big things are going to be for the year ahead. And actually, hopefully this year, we might be able to, to do some face-to-face events again, which, which will be really exciting in different, different cities around the world. And today, we are excited to be able to bring into the podcast some of our colleagues from different locations around the world as well. One of the great things about RiskMap is it really does bring the whole company together to focus on a massive task. And nothing exemplifies that more than the group of people that we've brought together today. Hot in the heels of the US withdrawal from Afghanistan, the AUKUS deal between the United Kingdom, Australia and the US was announced last month as a latest geopolitical drama hitting the headlines and triggering questions from our clients about what it means. A lot of the headlines that you see today, including about AUKUS, can make you think that your most significant and most immediate risk in Asia is about military competition and military confrontation. That is probably not the case. That was Julia Coyne, a director in our political risk consultancy in Shanghai. Possibly we could see the French looking to to tighten up the kinds of deals that they do and potentially looking at doing more screening on, on the deals that they're signing. But I I don't think we're likely to see trade restrictions in the way that we are seeing it, for example, with China and Australia. And that was Alexandra Kellett, a senior analyst in our political risk team in Europe. Sandra, tell us, what is AUKUS exactly? So as you said, Claudine, it's a deal between Australia, the UK and the US. It's mainly a a defence deal, a security pact, but it's kicked off with with what's been quite a controversial issue, which is that the US and Australia have agreed a submarine deal whereby the US will provide nuclear-powered submarines to Australia. And the reason that that's controversial is because it means that Australia will be replacing a deal that they had previously done with France for non-nuclear submarines. Julia, something tells me that you've gotten an awful lot of questions from clients about this about this new agreement. Yes, that's right. We have we have Chuck. 
We support a lot of foreign businesses, including from Australia, the UK, the US, who either have operations here in China or do business with China. And a lot of them have been concerned about the news. Why is that? Well, most of our clients are spending a lot more time worried about political and geopolitical risks in Asia Pacific now than they did a few years ago. That's in part due to the US-China tensions that we've seen really rise over the last three, four years, as well as some ongoing bilateral disputes between China and Australia, for instance. But we also now live in a world where headlines about political risks in the region here have become a lot louder, a lot scarier. This has forced a lot of the people who are managing risk, be they security or government relations or even in business development roles, spend a lot more of their time answering questions from executives about developments like this and whether it's going to disrupt their business in the region in some way. I want to come back to that in a second, Julia, because I think we need to talk about this now that that some of the initial flames have died down. But let's also go to the other sort of bombshell that went off in this deal, and that's what happened with France and France's submarine deal with Australia. Sandra, can you just take us through what happened there? So in 2016, France and Australia concluded a deal that was worth at the time about 37 billion US dollars, under which France would provide 12 submarines to Australia. Now, over the past five years since that was signed, there have been a lot of questions asked about that, particularly on the Australian side. There have been delays. There have been questions about whether the technology is right for what Australia wants it for. But Despite those kind of little niggles, there doesn't seem to have been any clear indication from Australia that it was planning to back out of the deal. By all accounts, France only seems to have been told about it literally minutes, if maybe hours before it was announced publicly. So France really feels like it's been blindsided by an ally pulling out of a deal without any notice. And then on top of that, have another ally move in to essentially poach that deal with the US coming in and signing a new deal. France is saying that Australia was still kind of days before talking about the deal and and essentially indicating that it was still in place. So it does really seem to have come pretty much out of the blue for France. Sandra, I'm I'm curious, when we look at diplomatic disputes in in Northeast Asia, not just between China and Australia, but also uh, past disputes between South Korea and Japan, we often see trade restrictions, either formal or informal, being applied as a result of these diplomatic spats. Obviously, currently, rather prominently, there's a lot of restrictions by China on Australian goods like wine or or lobsters. Do you think there's any chance of France imposing retaliatory import restrictions on on Australian uh, lobsters or wine? Well, I'm not sure how much Aussie Cab Sav the French are currently importing, but however much it is, I don't see that changing very much. I think The way the French have played it has been to make a lot of noise about how angry and upset they are about the deal. They have very much made it a diplomatic issue. We saw France withdrawing its ambassadors from the US and Australia, but they largely haven't made it about economic measures. And I don't really expect that to change looking forward. Possibly we could see the French looking to to tighten up the kinds of deals that they do and potentially looking at doing more screening on, on the deals that they're signing domestically. So continuing the trend that we're already seeing about a lot more investment screening for security purposes, including potentially more so with the US as a result of this. But I, I don't think we're likely to see trade restrictions in the way that we are seeing it, for example, with China and Australia. 
really good illustration there of the way that geopolitics is having an impact on trade and on on potentially on on specific potential investments that companies are considering as well. Not to mention the sense of relief that we all feel that the Cabernet Sauvignon is going to continue to flow. (laughs) (laughs) Depending on where you are. Right. (laughs) So what about US-France relations specifically, Sandra? Is there going to be a long-term impact there? I mean, things have already calmed down quite a bit, haven't they, since the initial burst of anger from the French in response to this deal? They have, and and things are are gradually improving. And ultimately, no, I don't think this is going to have a a long-term major impact on on Franco-US relations. The context that we have to see this dispute in is that we have French elections coming up in April next year, Macron running for re-election. He very much is positioning himself as a strong leader to a domestic audience, and he doesn't want the French to think that he's kind of letting the US get away with anything. So he is kicking up a fuss. We are seeing issues still in in other forums, for example, the Technology Council, where France has been not necessarily engaging in the way that it might have done prior to this dispute. But I think overall, are the US and France going to stay friends? Yes. Is there ever going to be a conflict where they're literally on opposite sides? I can't envisage that. There might still be cooler relations, but but a, a collapse, no. And France has already put its ambassador back in place in Washington, D.C., hasn't it? It has, yes. I guess this is, from the U.S. perspective, all part of President Biden bringing to life his intent to really double down a focus in his foreign policy efforts on, on Asia and Europe in the wake of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and illustrated by this deal is, is really sort of, I suppose, feeling the effects of that refocusing of attention. So this is just the latest in, in a series of developments, which I guess Zandra makes Brussels have just more reason to feel a bit cautious about where it, where it stands in Washington. Yes, I think it, it raises some questions about, about EU-US relations. But I think what's been very interesting is how little support there has been directly for France from the EU on this matter. So again, I don't see it having significant broader ramifications in terms of relations. But yes, I think it does underline to the EU that they in some ways need to kind of go it alone if they're looking to to shift their focus more towards the kind of Indo-Pacific region. We'll come back to our conversation in just a moment. But if you're enjoying the global insight and haven't visited controlrisks.com, you're missing out. Every week, we're adding new insights to help companies and investors better understand what's going on in the world. If you're wondering how the AUKUS deal or other geopolitical developments might impact on your business, and you want to understand exactly how, going beyond the headlines, Control Risks is here to help. We have experts based around the world who can provide a whole range of services. Get in touch. I guess the question is, what is what does this mean for Australia's place in the kind of wider world? I spoke to Corey Davey, partner and head of our business in Australia Pacific, to get the view from Sydney on AUKUS. Australia is definitely putting a lot of chips in the basket of this AUKUS alliance in the sense that the impression in Australia is that perhaps they underestimated the amount of 
diplomatic blowback that there would be definitely from the French, but also they hadn't done a lot of foreshadowing this within the wider region either. So the the government was reaching out to close allies in the region quite quickly to kind of reassure them and let them know that there's no change to their relationships. And there is a concern about an escalation of the military situation in the region. But it's difficult to know how much of that is along the same lines of the bombastic headlines we've already been getting, where, you know, former Malaysian presidents are saying that the Quad was going to lead to war and da 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 da. There's a lot of, of just hyperbolic commentary about the, the military threat. I actually think the military threat is not the issue here. I think the issue here is about the fact that Australia is seeking a China plus solution to our kind of economy and the way that we deal with the world, because obviously we're so heavily exposed to China. And the EU was seen to be one of those avenues. And there was obviously the free trade deal that was being negotiated. And certainly this has put a spanner in the works of that free trade deal. And for a lot of companies who had gotten used to operating in China, the idea of going into India or Indonesia or Vietnam is maybe a little bit overwhelming. And so they were looking to the EU, particularly the agriculture commodities, which are the ones who have been so heavily hit in the current kind of trade disputes with China. And so I think this alliance has certainly created some challenges for them there. We're hearing that phrase Indo-Pacific quite a lot these days. Julia, bring us up to speed. Why is that entering our vocabulary? In the AUKUS announcement by um, Morrison, Johnson, and Biden, all three really focused on this idea of a free and open Indo-Pacific region. This first and foremost, particularly in the context of the deal, refers to maritime access. There are a lot of disputed maritime regions in Asia, most prominently the, the South China Sea. Different claimants and non-claimants like the US, Australia, and the UK all have various stakes in maintaining access to those maritime areas. But it's not just about that. It's, it's also more generally about, about influence in the region, both politically and economically, which is why you have a lot more political attention through AUKUS and through more targeted Indo-Pacific strategies that have been published by a lot of, of other countries and regions that really focus more on, on Asia-Pacific. And in fact, just on the same day as the AUKUS announcement, the EU unveiled more details of its own Indo-Pacific strategy. They are detailed to some extent, but it's still quite a nebulous strategy. This is very much driven by, by trade interests more than the security side. But that's obviously partly because the EU is not a security block per se. It's a, it's a trading block. So definitely we're seeing more focus there from the EU. And I think in this sense, France is a key player because France has a presence in the region already. French overseas territories and French citizens living in the region, so arguably has a claim to a kind of greater stake in these this shift towards the region. And, and I think developments like this by the EU, by, by individual EU member states, somewhat belatedly, is a recognition of the growing importance of the Indo-Pacific, both politically and economically. We are, are working with a lot of clients who are either headquartered in the region or have been investing throughout this region for decades, but many are still getting their head around how different local market dynamics compare and where the, the risks and opportunities lie in those. I guess even companies without a significant presence on the ground in the region, they must be exposed to risk through their supply chains, are they? Yeah, absolutely. 
But to be honest, I think a lot of companies not headquartered in the region have only really begun to appreciate this as a result of a lot of the disruption or, or pressure on their supply chains that they've experienced over the past couple of years due to tariffs resulting from diplomatic disputes, COVID-19 related shutdowns, or the global semiconductor shortage. We are seeing evidence of that growing awareness in a lot more supply chain risk assessments that we do for companies who, who are trying to better understand what is most likely to lead to future disruptions and, and how to mitigate them. And this is a really complicated challenge with a lot of trade-offs because it's not as easy as simply moving your supply chains out of China due to concerns of, of technology decoupling or tariffs or, or moving out of Malaysia because of all the uh, COVID-19 related disruptions. There are always trade-offs in terms of the, the risks you face across, across different markets and companies need to fully understand what they're getting into and benchmark what is appropriate to their business. Julia, let's move away from Australia for a second. Tell us what the response to AUKUS has been in the rest of the region. It's been somewhat mixed. So some supportive, and some critical, but with the uh, French response really stealing the show on the international stage, shall we say, China has actually not been particularly vocal about it, but has criticized the deal also for some of its potential implications for nuclear non-proliferation. Of course, it's worth noting that Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States have always had a very, very deep relationship that is partly characterized by an enormous amount of collaboration trust and deep military and intelligence ties. So this is not a dramatic change of direction in that, in that respect. Sandra, what about that point that China's made around the implications for nuclear proliferation? Yeah, it's an interesting point. And, and I think, yes, Australia, the UK and the US have, have always had a close military cooperation and an intelligence relationship as well. If we talk about Five Eyes, that's those three countries plus Canada and New Zealand. But one of the interesting things with this angle is that by providing nuclear technology to Australia, this actually in some ways potentially creates a bit of a rift between Australia and New Zealand because New Zealand has a non-proliferation focus and it has said it would not allow these submarines into its waters. So while this, this deal might be in some ways deepening that relationship between Australia, the UK and the US. It also has kind of broader implications for that bigger relationship. The US has in the past turned down requests from allies like Japan or South Korea to help build nuclear submarines because of purported reasons of nuclear nonproliferation. Does that change now for, for countries like Japan or South Korea? This is not just a question of whether the US would be willing to, to provide them that technology in future but also whether it encourages those countries to develop the technology on their own and what that means for the, for the general dynamics in the region. So, Julia, at the top of the podcast, you mentioned that you're getting increasing amounts of questions about what's happening in the region, that the headlines are, are bigger and bolder and a little bit scarier. So when the client calls, what do you tell them? Well, we regularly tell clients that they should focus less on what's in the news, which is a, a little bit hypocritical from a, a group of news junkies like us who probably are doing these jobs in large part because of how much we like reading the news. But a lot of the headlines that you see today, including about AUKUS, can make you think that your most significant and most immediate risk in Asia is about military competition and military confrontation. That is probably not the case. I'm not saying you shouldn't prepare for extreme high impact risk scenarios, even if they are unlikely, 
But what I am saying is that it should not be consuming the majority of your scenario planning or risk management resources. Julia, we know you do an incredible amount of work supporting companies on geopolitical risk issues. What else are you helping them manage? What other kinds of risks do you find are actually the most commonly disruptive? What should companies focus on? Look, businesses now operate in a more interconnected environment, both physically interconnected, informationally interconnected, but also a more politicized environment. If you are a part of an international business, you are more likely to be exposed to operational disruption, regulatory restrictions, or reputational crises because of these geopolitical tensions. This is why businesses need to integrate an appreciation of geopolitical trends into the very fabric of how they're doing business. They need to map their business strategy out according to where the geopolitical fault lines sit for their industries. We see more and more clients doing this, often from a risk-based approach, but increasingly also working to better understand how they can ensure that they are in a position to claim the opportunities that come with this geopolitical shifts. Speaking of geopolitical shifts, we're sort of bouncing back and forth between hemispheres here, between Julia and between Zandra. Zandra, back to the the US and the EU. I mean, I'm relieved to learn that we don't have to worry about World War III anymore. But is the picture the same on, on this side of the, of the planet? There are definitely some, some similarities. And I, I think, again, what we would say speaking to clients about certainly the EU geopolitically is that often those big headlines aren't the, the key things to follow. The EU has made a big deal in recent years about saying that it wants to be more of a, a geopolitical player, but in, in a sort of a traditional sense, it hasn't managed to do that and it doesn't really know how to do that, partly because of those dynamics of having 27 members. What it is doing more of though, is finding a way to, to act geopolitically almost by stealth in a regulatory sense. And that the EU wants to position itself as a, as a leader in regulating in, in areas like technology, supply chain management. So really it's, it's kind of carving out a niche and that's where it's actually kind of facing off against the US in some ways is in kind of rival regulatory regimes. But I think in, in pure geopolitical terms, we are going to see more of the same and, and they'll carry on rubbing along as they have done. Julia, now that we can look at this whole issue with a slightly calmer mind and some of the diplomatic hysterics have come out of this new agreement, you know, what's the longer term view on on AUKUS? We recommend that companies spend a little less time obsessing about AUKUS and spend that time instead conceiving of how the underlying geopolitical trends will shape their business and define their opportunities as well as their risks in the coming years. Julia Coyme, a very big thank you for joining us from Shanghai. My pleasure. And Zandra Kellett from London, thank you too. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay tuned with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping build secure, compliant, and resilient businesses by visiting controlrisks.com. The Global Insight is produced by Sam Tornio and Vicky Bufton. For me, thanks for listening and bye for now. And goodbye from me.